As any reader of Australian history would know, the dismissal was by far no transparent event. Even once the months of plotting accumulated to the announcement of the sacking of the Whitlam government to the public, most of Kerr's decision-making and rationale to dismiss the elected government remained to be secretive in the public eye, long after the 11th of November, 1975. The dismissal can be thought of in part as not a completed historical event, but more of a political cover-up with a half-life. Over the years, details have emerged revealing Kerr and others' roles during the constitutional crisis. It took several years for the truth to service that Fraser did convene with Kerr before Whitlam was handed the letter of dismissal. It took 37 years to service the role of Chief Justice Sir Anthony Mason, and until a few years ago, the details of the palace connection with Kerr was unbeknownst. Today, we are very generously and luckily joined by Australian author and researcher Professor Jenny Hocking. Jenny Hocking's initiative and research skills were actually the reason why we know about those last two secretive aspects about the dismissal. She is both acclaimed in her fields of author and research profession. She received the Discovery Outstanding Researcher Award. She is a fellow in the School of Philosophy, Historical and International Studies. She is also a fellow in the Academic of Social Studies in Australia. As well as being an accomplished professor, she is also a well-established author. Her work has received recognition from some of the highest honours there is in her field. Her book, Gough Whitlam Volume 2, It's Time, won the Father Barbara Ransom Award in 2004 and was shortlisted in the Prime Minister's Literary Awards in the Australian History category and the National Bibliography Award. Jenny Hockey has not only had a very impressive resume, but an inspiring one too. Her work has allowed us to understand Australia's greatest constitutional crisis from another perspective that was unbeknownst to us. On top of all of her impressive work, she was also a really lovely, kind and easy person to talk to. So, without a further ado, here's my recording interview with Miss Jenny Hocking. Please enjoy. Just last year, you took the National Archives of Australia to federal court, seeking to overrule the embargo lasting until 2027 on the palace letters. The court ruled that the palace letters are personal and are not for Commonwealth's records, and as well as coming under the Archives Act, accordingly, they are to stay closed until 2027. Could you please explain to my audience what the palace letters are, how they pertain to Australian history, and why their release still matters today? Thanks, Henry. Uh, the letters are letters between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, mm-hmm. and the palace, but largely the Queen and her private secretary, um, uh, with the Queen and her private secretary, and they cover uh, the period leading up to the dismissal of the Whitlam government by Sir John Kerr and the weeks immediately following. Um, There's a particular bundle which we'd asked for which are separately labelled in the archives and are clearly what we've been calling the palace Mm -hmm. letters, but the conditions that are put on those letters Um, actually relate to all of the Governor-General's correspondence with the Queen for his entire period of office. So even though we're asking uh, very specifically about the ones that relate to Sir John Kerr's um, thinking and planning and options as he moved towards the dismissal, um, in fact, this this embargo covers all of his correspondence with the Queen. And I should point out that the embargo, even though the embargo, as you say, uh, can be lifted after 2027, that's only mm. um, a possibility. Uh, they can't be released before that date, but equally after that date, they still need the approval of both 
our Governor-General's official, official Secretary and the Queen's Private Secretary. So the situation is that if the Queen's Private Secretary doesn't give approval for their release, even after 2027, they'll remain embargoed. So mm -hmm. effectively, the palace letters are under a potentially indefinite embargo. We're entirely in the hands of the palace, Buckingham mm. Palace, as to whether we can see them. Now, in answer to your next part of the question, why does it matter? It matters because these are communications between the absolute highest level of a constitutional monarchy. That is, that is between the Queen and her representative in Australia. At the time in which her representative in Australia was moving to remove an elected government. So there's absolutely no doubt that these documents are critical to our history. They're a critical um, descriptor of our history. And even though we were unsuccessful, uh, as you said, in our, in our court case trying to have access to those, uh, to those letters, all of, all of the judges, including the two that did not go in our favour, um, we had one judge that was in our favour of the three, um, but all of the judges have accepted that it's clear that those records relate, in their words, to the history and government of Australia. And that really sums up why, in my view, they're so critical. If yes. they relate to our history and the history of our government, as Australians, we have a right to know that history and to mm. open up these letters for public access for all Australians. Yeah, because it's interesting, because I read in your book that um, the Queen's Secretary at the time said in 2011 that there was no sort of, like, secret plan between Kerr or the Queen during the time, and I think mostly the Queen's representatives and Kerr have insisted this over the years, but then it raises the question of why are they still protected and kept secret? Well, I think the longer they're, um, they're, they're embargoed, and they are embargoed by the Queen, not by an Australian... Mm order, although Sir John Kerr put those conditions on it, as it currently stands, the embargo is held by the Queen. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, it raises questions. But in my view, we already know enough about the letters and the content of the letters from what I've located in Sir John Kerr's other papers to mm -hmm. let us know that the palace knew far more about certainly Kerr's thinking. And certainly, without doubt, we know that the palace was aware of the possibility of dismissal. Um, and was not entirely unaware of, of, of where Kerr was going with this, <coughs> despite what, what we've been told and what the palace has insisted. So, you know, the letters are important for finalising our knowledge and understanding of the dismissal, certainly, but we don't really need the letters to tell us that a great deal of conversation was happening between Kerr and the palace, and much of it, in my view, uh, of aspects of governance that ought not to have been discussed between the palace and the Governor-General, certainly not without also involving the Prime Minister of the day. So, so that's the great significant context I'd like to make sure that you're aware of, that, that all of this took place secret from the Prime Minister. The, mm. the, 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 the monarch was well aware, and certainly Private Secretary was well aware, that the Governor-General was not informing Prime Minister Gough Whitlam of, of, his, of his thinking, of his planning, of, his, of much of his activity. Kerr himself has acknowledged that. He said, I remain silent to the Prime Minister. Now, we now know that Kerr was also talking to other people that he subsequently denied having spoken to in this way. And I think there's a real question mark over just how much um, the Governor-General informed the palace leading up to the dismissal. Thank you for your answer. Uh, 
Following up from the last question, the court ruled that the palace letters are personal and thereby the embargo was to remain. The same type of defence was used by Kerr to hide the involvement of Mason. Why do you think that privacy of public figures is so often invoked to conceal politically and historically relevant documents? And what are the main flaws in allowing this? Well, I think they're two uh, slightly different um, circumstances. The, the question over uh, the use of the term personal um, uh, as it relates to the palace letters mm-hmm. is one that has been used for a long time um, in order to, to maintain really royal control over over their correspondence and over their, mm. I think, a lot of you know, knowledge about their activities. Um, certainly the Royal Archives in, in England, which is a separate organisation from their national archives, the Royal Archives um, in England keeps a very tight control over its documents and it has quite a quite a different relationship with their national archives. We don't have a separate Royal Archive, thankfully, here. Um, but what we have here is an attempt to sort of create a parallel situation where we control the Royal Archives at the whim of the, of the, of the, of the Queen or the monarch, uh, even mm. though we don't ostensibly have any separate um, holding for it. But in England, the Royal Archive can actually reach into, metaphorically reach into the National Archive there and take documents, even ones which have been released for public access, and make a decision that they are, in fact, to be considered Royal Personal Archives. So they have great control. I mean, you may be familiar with um, Julia Baird's relatively recent work on Queen Victoria... Um, and the story she tells, which is a very uh, common one for researchers, of the great difficulty of getting access to what the Royal Archives deem to be personal records of letters uh, to and from Queen Victoria going back, you know, well over a century. So they are tightly held, they are tightly controlled, and the word personal has a has a slightly different connotation in that sense because it rela- relates mm-hmm. to the to the personal aspect of the royal family. So, you know, the royal family and the monarch have two... It's almost like a split, a split division of functions. There's a public function, and a, of course, then there's a private family involved there. So that's a different issue, I think, and it certainly was a different legal issue from a desire to keep private records mm. of involvement of key individuals in Kerr's, in Kerr's activities. And that, to me, is one of the really startling things of the uncovering of the history of the dismissal. I would have to say that nothing surprised me and to some extent um, really concerned me, disturbed me, than the clear intention uh, and deliberation to keep secret the role of key prominent individuals such as Sir Anthony Mason from the Australian public. I, I, I find that, you know, in the true sense of the, of the word, quite shocking. Uh, I interviewed Sir Anthony Mason, whose role was not known for, the, for 37 years, um, I did interview him before I revealed what I had found in Sir John Kerr's papers. And I asked him, in the interest of history, to speak on the record about the dismissal. He always refused to, and he refused to then. He said, I owe history nothing. Mm. Now, nothing could have, could have disturbed me more than that response. Yeah. He filled a public office for much of his life, paid for by the taxpayer, uh, achieved the highest office as Chief Justice of the High Court. Mm-hmm. And he maintained an extraordinary secrecy over his role and his guidance, as Sir John Kerr called it, uh, for Kerr, and which went to the extent of drafting a letter of dismissal for Kerr. It was an active role in that sense. 
to say you owe history nothing in that context is truly staggering. Now, Mason, mm. following the revelations in Gough Whitlam, his time, did make public his, his, his own version of events and uh, did acknowledge his role over the previous... Um, in the, in the six or seven months prior to mm-hmm. the dismissal. Um, and he also acknowledged that he had drafted a letter of dismissal. So we know a great deal about about that now. But the yeah. way in which the history has been so constrained and so deliberately constrained, I think, is almost as as as, as extraordinary as the events of the dismissal itself. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, but that National Archive part, some might say that's more evidence to become a republic, but... Uh, from our point of view, uh, look, I think, I think, I think it does raise real questions about, you know, what Gough Whitlam would have called the lingering relics of colonialism, <laughs> mm. the sort of lasting ties that might be there where you least expect them in terms of British um, outright control over over aspects of our archives that are to do with um, to do with royal matters, but also. You know, in a range of other ways that we perhaps haven't contemplated, the reserve powers of the, of the Governor General being one, um, mm. and, and a very significant one. So, the whole episode, both the ep- both the event of the dismissal, but also the way in which the history of it has been so um, enmeshed with uh, royal concerns over privacy and and, and, and protection, does um, concern me. Uh, the, 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 in, in the sense that, that it appears that there are some greater ties that still need to be firmly mm-hmm. firmly severed. So, yes, I do think it's an issue for a future republic. Um, I've always thought that the question of the Governor-General's reserve, reserve powers can't just be ignored as though they're going to go away once we become a republic. We do need to yes. address that one way or the other. Um, and that's something I think will become part of the debate as we move towards a republic, as we inevitably will. Thank you for your response. On to my next question. In Kerry O'Brien's book on Paul Keating, Keating states that he observed after dismissal that the goodwill between politicians of opposing parties diminished. Essentially, that the dismissal contributed to political polarisation, something that now characterises many Australians' disillusionment with politics today. As an academic political scientist, I was wondering your perspective on this. How do you believe that dismissal has impacted on the practice of contemporary politics? I think that, that, that what was so um, so damaging in the long term about mm. the dismissal was the way in which several established conventions of governance uh, were broken and were broken quite uh, shamelessly and partisanly. Um, and, and so in that, because of that, I think it has certainly, um, at the time, uh, formed a very divisive parliament, whether that's affected... Things now, I don't know. I mean, we we, we tend always to look back to a sort of golden age of Parliament that never really yeah. existed. Yeah. Each period of Parliament has its own issues and its own um, uh, memories, if you like, that 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 create great great divisions or great um, connections between the different parties of all stripes. Um, I, I, I think certainly Malcolm Fraser's actions as leader of the opposition uh, were so strident. Uh, so in breach of of convention, um, mm-hmm. let me just say the, the the two, the three really major ones, uh, because they're often forgotten in the history. The first was that Gough Whitlam was returned. This is another point that is often forgotten in history. Was returned in a second election in 1974. 
This was the double dissolution of May 1974. So he mm-hmm. had come back into office, and that was a historic re-election for a Labor government, uh, 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 the first in, in decades to be elected twice, um, and, uh, and uh, had picked up three Senate seats. So the Labor Party and the Liberal National Parties at that point, Liberal Country National Party it was at the time, uh, had the same number of senators on the return of that 1974 double dissolution. The only reason that the coalition opposition in the Senate was able to block supply was because two Labor senators um, were no longer in the Senate by that time. Uh, The Attorney-General Lionel Murphy had been appointed to the High Court and um, Bert Milliner, a Labor senator from Queensland, died. Both the, the, the replacement senators, both those senators were from Conservative states and in both those cases, the Conservative states did not appoint the Labor choice of senator. Mm. So it became what was called a tainted Senate. It was only because of that distortion of the election result in the Senate only 18 months earlier that the coalition was even able to block supply. So that's a really critical breach of convention that happened twice in the the months leading up to the dismissal. And it was critical for the numbers. Basically, Mm -hmm. the blocking of supply could not have happened otherwise. The second breach of convention, and I would say deep, deep impropriety, that we did not become fully aware of, although it was long suspected, until only a couple of years ago when I opened a previously embargoed um, posthumous interview, it was to be opened posthumously, had been done with, Sir Reg, with uh, uh, the former Senator Reg Withers, who was the leader of the opposition in the Senate at the time mm-hmm. of the dismissal, and is really seen as the architect of the way in which the dismissal came about. Uh, in that interview, Reg Withers reveals that, yes, Malcolm Fraser was in secret contact with the Governor-General prior to the dismissal. Now, that's something mm-hmm. that had been denied by all parties, mm-hmm. even though journalists, authors, historians such as myself long suspected that that, was, that had to have happened and that the sequence of events mm-hmm. meant it had happened. But there had been no concrete evidence of that until um, Reg Withers interview indicated that. It's interesting that he embargoed the interview until after his death. Mm. Um, That was the second deep breach of convention. And the final one, of course, is again one that's often forgotten in the history, which is that, and it's very interesting, we're discussing this today when we're talking about the government holding its, um, whether it can hold its its the confidence of the House of Representatives. And you and your listeners, I hope, would know just how critical that vote, a vote of confidence is in the continuation of a government. If you lose a motion of confidence in the House, that is the end of the government. You must call on Mm. election. Now, on the afternoon of the 11th of November 1975, in the House of Representatives, the appointed government of Malcolm Fraser, of course, it had been appointed by the Governor-General earlier that day, only an hour and a half before. That, That government was defeated in a motion of no confidence, and it was defeated by 10 votes. That same motion called on the Governor-General to reinstate a government led by the member for Werriwa, that is, a government led by Gough Whitlam. Mm. This profound breach, third profound breach of convention, then took place, which is that Malcolm Fraser, having lost so comprehensively, as of course he would, he didn't have the numbers in the House of Representatives, he lost the motion of no confidence and refused to resign, refused to go to the Governor-General and convey that that. That, uh, that motion 
and the Governor-General on his part refused to see the Speaker of the House who was seeking to convey that motion. That is a really important part of the story and the history of the dismissal. And so there are three extremely important breached conventions that occurred on that day. So, of course, the government that then came back under Fraser after the, his, his significant electoral victory was one that was always seen as uh, constrained, if you like, by the circumstances in which it had come to office. Uh, mm -hmm. Many saw it as a, as a relatively timid Conservative government. Fraser himself, I think, was deeply, um, uh, deeply marked by that, that, mm -hmm. that set of events. Um, and he later left the Liberal Party, which is extraordinary. But, but certainly it was a very divisive, enormously divisive parliament that they came back to, that Gough Whitlam came back to, a very damaged one and really a very tragic one. I think for all of the key protagonists, Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam and John Kerr, it was mm. a terribly sad uh, few years that followed, particularly for Sir John Kerr. Well, thank you very, very much. That was very generous of you um, to do this interview. And oh, it's great been my insights. pleasure, Henry. Oh, thank you. Uh, just one last question. I know that uh, I read an article just before beginning the interview of um, the decision on Friday of the court to keep the past letters um, stayed with the embargo and not release them. Uh, you said in the um, article that you don't have any plans or you won't talk about any plans to go forward with the palace letters until you hear the um, uh, judgment down from the uh, judges. I was just wondering, what would you recommend for my listeners if they can do anything to help, and myself, with the palace letters right now? Oh, well, it's excellent that you asked this question. We have, we have <laughs> a, uh, a chuffed crowdfunding um, mm -hmm. uh, I was going to mention that at the campaign, <laughs> and this would be a great deal of, of assistance because... Um, mm -hmm as we're considering whether to go forward with an appeal, of course, every stage of appeal um, is, is relatively expensive. And I, mm. uh, I, in my view, this, this points to a need to actually amend the Archives Act to allow challenges through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, but that's another, another issue. However, um, we're seeking a, a, a target that we've not yet reached. So um, any support, tiny, uh, medium, large, mm -hmm. whatever whatever people feel they can give um, would be greatly appreciated. The Chuffed sure. site is called Release the Palace Letters and um, we do have a wonderful uh, pro bono legal team that has worked throughout on this, mm -hmm. all, all of it pro bono and, and obviously it could not have possibly taken place without that, that, that extraordinary support uh, from all of the legal team involved. Mm -hmm. So any support that your listeners might be able to give through the Chuffed uh, campaign site would be greatly welcome. And, of sure. course, any encouragement, support, whatever, further down the track, if we move towards perhaps a, a, a political solution in terms of seeking permission of the Queen, which sticks in my core a little bit, but, but if that's what it takes um, mm. to seek to open the letters, I think all, all, all support for that move later down the track would, would be appreciated. But right for now, I think we've got a legal process that we need to see out. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it goes to the High Court, we haven't yet determined. I'll put the um, link to the website where you can put your donations in the show notes if any of my listeners are interested, and I highly encourage you to do so. Thank okay, you very so much, Eric. Thank you for tuning in to the interview. I thank Jenny Hoffman for replying to my emails and giving the insightful and informed interview she did. Next episode, we'll be going back to the past to look at Fraser's impact on the dismissal. Until then. <laughs>